This week on page 180, we try to work through the trauma of meeting David in this week's penultimate episode of The Last of Us. I give my Oscar predictions ahead of this weekend's ceremony, plus love reviews on Creed 3, Joyland, Close and Alcaraz. All that and more still to come. The 95th Academy Awards take place on Sunday night. So having had my rant already and got it out of my system about who I felt deserved to be nominated and who got snubbed wrongly, uh, it's now time for me to have my Oscar prediction. So there's a way to do this because... I, for, I think I need to break this into two separate parts. What I want to see happen or what I think deserves to win versus what I think is actually going to win, which you have to really do uh, because the Academy, who for the purpose of this exercise, we'll just call Oscar, okay? We'll give it a human form because if Oscar was a person, it'd be like a teenager, who watches a documentary for the first time and watches one documentary on a given subject and gets engaged for the first time and has to become an expert on it. They ultimately probably mean well, but they're loud about it and aggressively looking for clout. So they're kind of like, uh, excuse me, I actually know all there is to know about the plight of Emperor Penguins because unlike some people, I actually care about the planet. They're trying to be different and special and maybe overcompensate for how ignorant they felt previously on the subject by liking something niche about it. So it implies that they've always been interested in it. Like, oh my God, you didn't see Parasite? That's like my fourth favorite ever Korean movie, which is saying something because I lost count of the Korean movies I've watched. They ask a lot of others in the name of kind of morality while also glaringly refusing to give up even an inch of their own privilege. In fact, they usually argue that whatever cause they're championing entitles them to further privilege. And ultimately, when you step back, their opinions only seem to benefit themselves. And conversely, you rarely see people who won't benefit from having these viewpoints getting on board. And when you think of the likes of Time's Up, for example, the movement that happened and took over award ceremonies in recent years, a few years, ago, uh, for example. It was all women at the forefront, with very few of Hollywood's men doing more than wearing a pin or shaking their head like an Irish granddad saying, that's just terrible. <laughs> and there's precisely zero consistency or follow-through in views. Whatever causes they're voting for is usually based off whatever trend is getting traction that year. If you look at, for example, Oscar So White a few years back and how that movement coincidentally led to a lot of black actors and black-led products, projects rightfully winning awards, Yet then this year you'd look at Viola Davis and Danielle Deadweiler just chilling at home despite both deserving to be in the best actress mix. So that's Oscar. Oscar is essentially an attention, clout-seeking trend hopper who likes saying the right things when the camera is looking, but once they give out an award, they think that they've just fixed whatever problem or adequately celebrated whatever minority is in the limelight at the time before then reverting back to the status quo at the first available opportunity. So let's go into our picks. Let's look at what I think Oscar's going to pick and what I think deserves to win. This year, I think Oscar wants to show the world that he's just like regular like you and me, buddy, without losing his street card too much either and still kind of having his fancy taste. So I'm picking Top Gun Maverick to clean up in the technical awards for the likes of editing, sound and VFX. While I think Elvis is going to get the nod for cinematography, although I'd prefer to see Empire Light and think it deserves it. And Avatar wins production design. Uh, Oscar always loves to show that he's 
on top of all the cool international trends and we'll follow the crowd in giving Nadu Nadu from Aurora best of original song, which to be fair, I agree with. There's an opportunity for Oscar to get his, to pat his old pal John Williams on the back though for his Fableman score. So I think he's going to. In 2022, I'm more of a Sun Lux kind of guy myself who likes to listen to John Williams' back catalogue. Uh, so I'd personally go everything everywhere. Uh, but I think it, that's going to get us time to shine later in the night. Um, Oscar, I feel, is going to irritate the shit out of me on Best International Feature. I just know it. Objectively, and I know even if you're not from Ireland and you're watching this on TikTok or listening to this podcast, you're hearing my accent and you know, oh, he's going to say on Colleen Kuhn. But objectively, on top of it being Irish and the first ever Osquelga movie that's nominated for an Oscar, it is the best movie on this list. In fact, do you know what? I'd pick any of the other contenders above the person I know Oscar is going to pick, which is going to be All Quiet on the Western Front. For animated feature, Oscar is going to show that he's still cool, he's still edgy, he's still down with the kids by giving it to Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, despite Marcel to show his shoes on being the one that's going to actually be cool with the kids for years to come. The Screenplay Awards are generally an opportunity for Oscar to award movies which won't get the Best Picture and Director nods. Uh, so I'm going for Banshees of Inisherin to win Original Screenplay and All Quiet on the Western Front for Adapted screen, Screenplay, even though I pick everything everywhere and Top Gun Maverick myself, uh, respectively. Onto the supporting acting roles now. And for actress, I feel Oscar is going to be split between Jamie Lee Curtis and Stephanie Zhu from Everything Everywhere. So I think they're going to cancel each other out. While I think he still feels a little bit guilty about his uh, white supremacist roots showing through a few years ago when Chadwick Boseman was uh, predicted to win Best Actor, but then got snubbed for Anthony Hopkins at the last minute. So I think Angela Bassett is going to take this for Wakanda forever. And that's not to take away or minimize Angela Bassett's work. I think she deserves to win it. I'm quite happy with that. That, uh, but the correct pick in this category is actually Stephanie Zhu. Uh, don't feel too sad for everything everywhere though, as I feel Oscar is going to use this year to show that he's all about Asian cinema again, despite the fact that uh, everything everywhere is not an Asian movie. It's produced in, it is a Hollywood movie produced by A24 that just happens to star Chinese actors. But again, Oscar never gets into the details when it comes to minorities. Uh, I think Ki Hyung Kwang and Michelle Yeoh, I think I both want and think they will pick up the Oscar for best supporting actor and best actress best actor though that is an absolute battlefield Paul Meskel is clearly the most deserving pick again not just saying that because I'm Irish and do you know what it is an Irish heavy year with the likes of Banshee and on Colleen Kuhn and stuff like that so it's not beyond the realms of possibility that he gets in there and as well like Oscar should feel guilty for snubbing after Sun for best picture in favour of the likes of Triangle of Sadness Tar or Avatar but I don't think today is Paul's day. Bill Nye getting a legacy award for living, Colin Farrell getting top level recognition for Banshees and Austin Butler embodying a character so thoroughly in Elvis are all traditionally favourable Oscar narratives. So it is a tight race with no clear favourite. But when in doubt in tight races like this, you can ask yourself one thing. Is any of the candidates doing a dramatic physical transformation or acting with a disease? And in this stage, we have... Brendan Fraser, come on down, whether you deserve it or not, who's grabbing Oscar's attention with both a physical role and a comeback narrative where a golden statue somehow makes up for Hollywood being a, a little bit of a historical moral cesspool. On to the biggies now. So, best director. 
you can immediately rule out rightfully Todd Field and Ruben Oslin for Tara and Triangle and Sadlers respectively who are both just extremely fortunate to be here Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert should win for everything everywhere clearly the best directed movie of the pack uh, Martin McDonough will win this if Oscar is absolutely drunk this year and to be fair Oscar is quite fond of the drink that does happen regularly so it is a possibility but I think Steven Spielberg staying relevant in 2023 while producing a movie about how important the thing that Oscar is most interested in himself, the movies, uh, will be enough to get him the nod for favorites. So what we have left with Best Picture, we have All Quiet, Avatar, Banshees, Favourment, Top Gun, Maverick and Elvis have all been recognized. Triangle of Sadness and Tara shouldn't be here to begin with, so I'm fine with them being completely subbed for night. Uh, we've already heard enough of the women talk. Uh, as I said earlier, Oscar will tend to just forget about certain narratives and women talking is not on the agenda this year. Women talked uh, when they did the Time's Up movement thing and Oscar's just not about that anymore. Uh, there's a new trend in town. Um, so with that as well, then we have one left by elimination and we have to ask ourselves, does it tick the right boxes though? Is it something different that Oscar can get clout and attention and seem trendy for knowing about? Yes, it is. Does it celebrate people who don't normally get celebrated and give them an award so then Oscar can just go back to completely forgetting about these people again? Yes, it does. Does it have momentum from previous ceremonies without absolutely sweeping the board so Oscar can feel feels the need to go left and show that it's special and different by choosing something else at the last minute? Yes, it does. And, least importantly for Oscar, is it the best movie of the year? Yes, it is. I predict both Oscar and I will give the best picture this year to everything, everywhere, all at once. Deservedly so. Anyway, look, guys, I'm going to be staying up. I can't wait. Uh, Sunday night is going to be such a good night in the page 180 verse. And I hope you guys uh, will join along in some of the fun if you're able to. Uh, the Oscars from 12 to 3. And then uh, I'm going to be straight after that uh, watching uh, The Last of Us finale. So amazing, amazing Sunday night. Uh, I'm going to be tweeting along with the Oscars as well as time goes on on at page. 180 pod so please join me if you're staying up and uh, I can keep you company and hopefully entertain you along the way but that is what the awards are going to give out this Sunday let's get into uh, the movies that are released this week and let's get into some new reviews
closes the Belgian submission for Best International Feature, the Oscars for which it's deservedly nominated. Written and directed by Lucas Dunn, it tells the story of childhood friends Leo and Remy, played by Eden Dambreen and Gustave de Viola, in both feature debut. Don't actually discover Dan Breen on a train, seeing him interact with friends while Lucas listened to music and instinctively knew that he was looking at the future Leo. He made him an offer there and then and, and may turn out to be one of the greatest moments of spontaneous inspiration in the history of cinema. The movie is very, very similar in theme to last year's Un Monde, which tracked how the playground caused a rift between siblings that didn't frankly need to exist. Here early on, it's very clear that Leo and Remy are extremely close childhood friends as we meet them. They're raised in loving, supportive households that allowed them to develop a deeply, uh, physically affectionate, boundary-free relationship that is what it is and doesn't actually harm anyone. That is, of course, until they go to high school and questions begin about if they're together or not, if they're gay, which leads to Leo becoming self-conscious and pushing Remy away in small ways that don't go, go unnoticed as a rift that quickly becomes devastating develops. And the thing that I appreciated and admired about Close here is it didn't take a side. It really just had empathy with all of its main characters because nobody is wrong in this rift, which is what makes it not only effective, uh, it makes it believable, it makes it authentic, which makes it engaging, which makes it engrossing, which also makes it tragic in, the, in how it turns out. Leo is just a kid. He just wants to be accepted by others here and engage with his more sporting side and kind of uh, his, his physically competitive side as well. Uh, whereas Remy just wants to keep things as they are and is a bit more quiet and sensitive. We see him being more artistic and being into his music more than that. And the tension of Close lives in the gaps of that point in your life where you're not mature enough and don't have the communication skills to navigate those subtle differences between a friendship. Although I think all of us in some way can relate to those rifts in a friendship and how, even if we kind of take the friendship for granted at times, how devastating it actually is when a friendship that close begins to tear apart but again it is just here the fact is it's one conversation from away from happening and a lot of goes unsaid here it's extraordinary the amount of trust that don't puts in his actors especially consider their experience their inexperience at acting but the end result of that is absolutely incredible you have moments of big revelation. So, for example, in the middle, uh, there's a moment of big revelation on a bus. Everyone who's seen it knows exactly what I'm talking about here. That's told mainly through silence and facial expression changes. So the characters don't necessarily want to talk about what's happened, but they're both kind of coming to terms with what, what's happened, realizing it at the same time. And by the time they actually say what happened and confirm it, we already know as an audience. Um, it, I also admire that it remains ambiguous on whether or not Leo and Remy's relationship is actually romantic because the truth is, it doesn't matter if it is. These should be allowed to figure out things in their own space, in their own time, privately, and it's only the external influences that challenge their ability to do so. The word stigma gets thrown around a lot these days, perhaps a little cheaply, if I'm being honest, to the point that it loses a lot of its meaning. But this is one of the most powerful on-screen illustrations of the damage the stigma can cause, and the fact that it does so with such soft strokes is absolutely incredible. It doesn't try, and it, I don't think the word stigma is mentioned once in that, or it's even heavily in, uh, employed, but again, it is very much based on that, and that is the kind of wedge that drives our characters apart. 
Both directors and actors do so much with so little. There's small but really effective touches throughout this. Like the two, uh, Leo and Remy, go to sleep early on in the movie. And again, like they establish so much early on. Like we know within a couple of scenes just how close this relationship is. Just what like type of relationship it is again the royal remaining ambiguous as to whether it's romantic or not we know it's very physically affectionate very physically close that there is a possibility there but also that our characters just haven't dealt with that and they're just enjoying having the friendship and enjoying each other as well there's you see in one stage they go to sleep beside each other and they end up kind of in a spoon position very very close but then in the next scene they go into the schoolyard for the first time as far as we see anyway and then what the what don't does is he'll pull the camera back and zoom out from our characters as we start to kind of see the the world expanding for them and how now they have to navigate not only their own relationship but what everyone else may think about their relationship. They're now fitting into this bigger picture. They allow the actors time to breathe in the silence for us to emotionally follow them to where they need to be. And it is fantastic. And at the end of this, I actually can't remember an emotional outpouring from an audience after a movie, especially one for adults, as I experienced it in this one. People leaving the cinema, I'm not exaggerating again. And this wasn't like a full house on a Friday night. This was a Monday afternoon screening. People leaving the cinema were actively needing to hug each other. Uh, I walked past one elderly man who was just openly weeping after leaving it. I went to the bathroom afterwards and like there was three of us who were in stalls uh, that had obviously been to the same movie and you could hear sobbing from the stalls. It was literally every... the, The word not a dry eye in a house, again, it's something that gets thrown around it literally wasn't. Everyone was uh, in absolute bits after this. But again, it's not the type of movie that tries to elicit that reaction. It's just real. It's relatable. It's something we can all feel. It goes places that, again, if people's lives haven't gone in that direction, we could easily see how just one decision could have led us to that direction and and kind of caused as much damage as, as it did and, and as our characters ended up having to deal with in this movie. Um, and that makes it quietly devastating too. Close is an absolute masterpiece. Bring tissues, but go see this movie immediately. It is remarkable. Um, absolutely excellent movie. It's probably going to be one of my top 10 movies of the year, if not fighting for top spot. It is amazing. I loved it. Joke's not quick. एक मच्छर तो मुर्गी नाल प्यार हो गया मच्छर तो मुर्गी ने पप्पी की थी तो मच्छर बर्ड फ्लू तो मार गया तो मुर्गी डंगी तो पूछ क्यों क्यों क्योंकि मोहब्बत दा अंजाम मौत है <coughs> अच्छा नहीं लगा बिल्कुल नहीं Urdu and Punjabi language Pakistani drama Joyland was the winner of the of the Queer Palm Prize at Cannes last year after after receiving what's described as a roaring eight-minute standing ovation after its screen at the festival. Sami Sadiq's film attracted controversy after last year being banned in Pakistan for glamorizing the transgender lifestyle before the ban was reversed everywhere outside the Punjab province where it's actually set uh, after a massive public outcry. The movie follows Hijab, played by Ali Janejo, who after years of disappointing his father in an extremely traditional traditional Pakistani family by being unemployed and failing to provide a child gets a job as a background dancer in a Bollywood burlesque style show where he grows fascinated by the show's star Alina Khan's transgender dancer Biba. 
Although we're not used to seeing this story told in this setting, it's one that follows really familiar beats. Ignorance is ignorance. It doesn't matter where it is, ultimately. There's no country or culture where the reasons for people's ignorance all of a sudden becomes magically valid with cases like this. And I guess that's kind of the point that Joyland is trying to make, and it's what makes the movie work. Because although we're seeing this in a kind of fictional, familiar Bollywood setting originally, like uh, being illustrated through the uber traditional Punjab area, we see how universal the human experience is once we remove those imaginary boundaries and we, we allow cultures to put up. This isn't a film looking to lay waste to Pakistani culture, though, or attack it. It's more than happy to celebrate the positive and paints a vibrant kaleidoscope of colour of what actually could be before being tempered by the mundane and dull reality of what is real when you factor in those cultural inhibitions. Because as we get back to the traditional neighbourhoods, we see families squashed on top of each other, smothering any chance of personal freedom of expression with their backwards groupthink. We take the train and we hear the same... Ignorant gendered attacks that people try dress up as concern or progressiveness, as we hear over here. Khan gives a career-defining performance as Biba. As the first trans person to have a lead role in a Pakistani movie, she has many hats to wear. She has to be beautiful, sexy, charming and humanizing, but also able to spit fire and venom when called upon. She has to be vulnerable and afraid in a world that doesn't understand her or even want to do so, while also being complicated and battling her own prejudices at the same time. It's a near impossible task, but one that she absolutely goes through with style. Rusty Farouk also gives a standout performance as Hyder's neglected wife, Mumtaz. Joyland really effectively illustrates how an entire country can get caught in a habit of groupthink that actually benefits nobody when you look at it, even the elders who champion it, but how everyone must at least pay lip service to it for fear of stepping out of line. And from an Irish standpoint, that's something that I'd imagine quite a lot of us would be able to relate to in some way, and why I recommend you give Joyland a watch, even if the subject matter seems completely out of your comfort zone. Because that's the point the film is trying to ultimately examine here. Can we truly experience happiness? Can we even even properly know if we are truly happy while still stuck within those comfort zones and the cubbies holds that society has apportioned us into. Joylan asked that question and it answers it in a really compelling way and I recommend you go out of your way to see it. Alcaraz was Spain's entry into the Oscars Best International Feature, written and directed by Carla Simon, not to be confused with the You're So Vain songstress, and released on movie this week. It follows a family of peach farmers who learn that their land is to be sold after the passing away of their previous landlord, and how that impacts not only them, but their community as modern life threatens to impinge on all that they know. 
In a touch that I love that has a really high success rate, Simon opted to use just one professional actor in this production and instead cast almost all of the movie with local Catalonians who'd be familiar with this lifestyle. And the end result is a movie that ranks 10 out of 10 for authenticity. It feels almost documentary-like at times, with the cameras just happen to be following this family and you're just getting to experience day-to-day life side-by-side with them. And that's absolutely idyllic at times. The Catalonian rural landscape is absolutely gorgeous and captured so richly that even in a cold slap like we're experiencing now in Ireland, I felt like I was getting a tan. That authenticity allows us to really connect connect with what we'd be missing by moving away from this type of lifestyle in favour of the ugliness of the likes of cranes crudely digging up land and replacing it with solar panels. The flip side of the movie's willingness to just set up our premise and then sit with this family for the duration, though, is that the plot at times lacks a certain momentum that meant at times I found myself drifting towards checking my phone and zoning out of the movie, and that's especially problematic when the movie is subtitled and you need to be watching. And I'm all for show, don't tell. There's definitely a side of that that adds a lot to the movie's positives, but it does ultimately need to go somewhere. And the fact that the ending simply crashes in at two hours rather than anything conclusive leaves you feeling a bit unsatisfied and a bit unrewarded for the time you spent with this. I see what they were going for, that this is an ongoing issue with no immediate solution or conclusion. And this family's plight, even if they were going to resist the change and succeed in doing so, is ultimately inconsequential in the grand scheme of things. But still, stories do have structure for a reason. And this is also probably more of a personal pet peeve that just didn't connect with me and there's probably good reasoning behind it. But I do get uncomfortable whenever I see children sexualized on screen or there's any kind of child nudity that's not absolutely essential. I don't think... Seaman meant anything by this, more just illustrating that point of a teenager's life, for example, when feelings are awoken and different priorities uh, begin to take hold, or just showing young children as they would be in their natural habitat. It just leaves me feeling a little bit icky, though, again, if it's not completely necessary or a part of the story that you're planning to pay off. All in all, look, it's never bad to chill out for a couple of hours in a beautiful Catalonian setting and I enjoyed Alcaraz but would I recommend you go out of your way to watch it or consider watching it again myself? Unfortunately not. Hey my man can I help you? Let me get the autograph. Nah I ain't signing the autographs but you get off my car. Oh holy you don't remember me huh? I'm a long way from bumming rides from your mom. Damn. Boy, you had, you had, you had me. Damien. Yeah, just got back to the hood. Stopped by the old gym, but, uh... Yeah, we upgraded a couple years ago. See? Damn, it's, 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 uh... It's been a minute. Creed 3 is the ninth film in the Rocky franchise and the directorial debut lead actor Michael B. Jordan. It's also the first not to feature Sylvester Stallone uh, as the series begins to move away from the original title character after disagreements that he had with the producers behind it. The plot of Strong Shades of Rocky 3 is we return to the life of Adonis Creed at the peak of his powers, achieving what appears to be balanced both professionally and personally with wife Tessa Thompson's Bianca and daughter Amara played by Mila Davis-Kent. 
That is until, however, a new hungry contender emerges in Adonis's childhood friend, Dame Anderson, played by Jonathan Majors, and his relentless ambition and propensity for causing trouble threatens to upend everything. Dame is effectively playing a modern take on Mr. T's clubber Lang, as the foil that's needed to cause the champion to dig deep and find new strength when he's in a bit of a comfort zone. But since it's Majors, he gives the role a depth that takes it to a new level. Just weeks after his first feature film role as Kang was praised as the one unifyingly positive aspect of the new Ant-Man movie, Major's world domination continues. He seems to thrive in those quiet moments most actors don't even consider, able to convey multitudes of emotions and suspense with a single reaction shot, constantly leaving the audience off balance in scenes that would totally be unremarkable in other hands. Unlike Quantumania though, this isn't a case of the nuance he, be- he brings being responsible for the only depth of an otherwise average movie. Because Creed is a winning formula built upon an existing winning formula. It's now been nearly, think about this for a second, 50 years since the first Rocky movie, yet somehow the series continues to not only work while regurgitating familiar beats, but finding small and fresh ways to evolve at the same time, without losing the familiarity that we're all here for. It's very much in the same vein as Top Gun Maverick, where this movie succeeds in staying out of its own way. The Creed universe doesn't need to be a multiverse. It doesn't need any dramatic contrivances just to keep the party going. At the core, it's still the simple premise that Rocky and Apollo gave us nearly half a century ago. Two guys who are extremely talented, charismatic, but different in fundamental ways and just don't like each other. They're going to face demons, they're going to train hard, they're going to overcome them, and they're going to fight each other. That's it. No bells and whistles apart from the fight bell. It's a simple, effective story, but told really, really well. I do say no bells and whistles, but having watched the first two Creed movies the week before this, one thing I really admire about the series is its use of its budget. You'll regularly, as recently as last week, for example, hear me roast the likes of Netflix for substituting budget for substance. With Creed, it manages to toe the line perfectly. It's a clearly expensive movie, but it spends its money smartly to give you what feels like a bespoke prestige experience. And as expensive as it all looks, it's never actually distracting or feels like it's overcompensating. Well, how does it do this? In addition to uh, returning an absolutely stellar supporting cast in spite of Stallone's absence, you feel the benefit of every single penny spent. Rocky montages are like Marvel signatures or Star Wars scrolls at this stage. They're a Hollywood tentpole experience. The fights also have that authentic, credible attention to detail that feels totally earned with the build-up. Like Top Gun Maverick, they said, why are people here? And then they just poured money into making that answer the best experience possible. And it's not rocket science. It does all this while delivering an excellent soundtrack in line with our expectations from this series. The song choices had me nodding along and smiling since the film opened with Dr. Dre's The Watcher. It's actually incredible how the franchise has pivoted so hard culturally from what it was 50 years ago, yet somehow managed to do so in a way that you feel also kind of respects its roots. Those two things shouldn't contradict each other, yet it all just works in sync, like, well, Rocky and Apollo did. Jordan's directorial debut is brave, uh, particularly during the climactic fight scene. He moves away from some similar beats that we've gotten used to over the 50 years and dares to experiment at crucial points. For me, it didn't match the highs of the Creed and Drago fight from the last movie, which was cinematic bliss that made it difficult not to start jumping from your seat and start punching along with them. Uh, This has some left turns that you don't hate because they fit with the kind of story they're telling, but also there's a lot to be said for just sticking with going the distance in the background 
background as the hero fights back when you only get one of these climactic fight scenes every few years. I did respect the braveness though to try something different and I don't think that that made the movie not work or was any way disappointed by it. If anything, it made me more confident that the franchise can continue to have legs with perhaps a turn towards the world of women's boxing being next on the agenda and that seems to be what the movie suggests with Gordon also coming out and uh, confirming recently that there will be a Creed 4 in the works. This is a really fun movie from a franchise that continues to never miss. Here's to the next five decades worth of more excellent sequels. No, I, I believe everything happens for a reason. It does. It does. I can prove it to you. Okay. We didn't expect this winter to be so cruel. Nothing will grow. Game's been hard to find. So I sent four of our people to a nearby town to, to scavenge what they could. And only three of them came back. And the one that didn't was a father. He had a daughter just like you. And her dad was taken from her. Turns out he was murdered by this crazy man. And get this, that crazy man was traveling with a little girl. You see? Everything happens for a reason. James, lower the gun. All right, guys, time to go into the spoiler verse for the second last time of this series. Guys, ah, I was looking forward to this so much and I've been looking forward to the individual episodes, but it's very um, bittersweet to get to this stage, thinking that we'll only have one more of these episodes left to discuss. Um, I'm, of course, talking about The Last of Us. We heard a clip there from episode eight, uh, When We Are In Need. Uh, joining me to discuss this, it's been an episode that... Since we've started talking about these episodes, all of us have been looking forward to episode eight. Uh, I'm being joined by not one, but two Kevins uh, to do so, because one would not just be able to contain uh, the madness that uh, we've witnessed. Uh, I'm joined, of course, by uh, fan clubs, Kevin Keane and... Hello. Former pro wrestler, probably a bruiser. He, I, he, he wasn't until last week when I retired him. Kevin Squared, it's the power of two now. We just go with that. <laughs> Kevin Squared. <laughs> Kevin, Kevin Squared, Love yeah. It. Oh, we, we always think of this at the end of the series. Um, <laughs> Guys, <laughs> we'll, we'll get your episode thoughts kind of as we go along as usual but like we're now at the end of the series how is it sitting with you are you just buzzing for the finale or are you kind of is 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 the morning starting to come in how, how are you feeling kev we'll, we'll start with you uh the morning is starting to come in because i it's it i do i loved last night's episode so much that it's i just want more of it now and um yeah, and I know next week's episode is only about 40 minutes long, I think, as well. Really? Yeah. So um, there's, 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 there's even little of it, or less less of it left than I even thought it would be as well. So I don't know how they're going to squeeze the next episode into 40 minutes, but should look, here we, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll take what we're given, I suppose. Yeah, this is it. Bruiser, you're on the, the, the last episode, the second last week. How are you feeling about, like... Yeah, if, if anything, I'd say, like, last night's episode, and no, sorry... Made me hate episode seven so much more. <laughs> okay, okay. Like, there was it was so good last night, right? Yeah. <laughs> it was fucking everything. Yeah, if and it was rushed, right? Yeah. And now Kev started saying it's forty minutes in the last episode. Bro, I had to watch a forty-five minute fucking love story with two children that I couldn't give a shit about. Like, <laughs> no. <laughs> 
<laughs> so yeah, I've, I've enjoyed it. I haven't watched a weekly television series in years, man. You know, yeah. uh, maybe the last season of Game of Thrones, barely, and the last season of Breaking Bad. But they were the only two seasons that I watched weekly of. You know, everything else is with spoilers. So it's a foreign thing for me, and something I tried to stay away from. But I have enjoyed it. It has been nice, and there is something that you go, "Oh, that's out tomorrow now." You're looking forward to it, or whatever. So, okay. except for episode seven. Yeah, except for that, of course. And the one Tommy was in, let's not forget, like, when we skipped the one that Tommy was in a lot of as well. Tommy. <laughs> Hashtag. We literally, the one show we have not covered is the one with a lot of Tommy in it. Just, it just out of respect for you. Just out of respect. Um, episode 8 anyway of course look we're dying to discuss this so let's get to it but first off as we always do we're going to give you your old recap again guys just before we do a word on spoilers uh, guys if you've watched this episode you're okay for spoilers you can proceed uh, we are going to discuss the video game but we're not going to discuss any plot points that come up so don't worry uh, we may allude to similarities or we may kind of uh, hint at things that are to come but we're not going to hint about anything to do with the plot uh, so you are safe going ahead if you haven't watched this what are you doing it's a recap cap show like this is what we do uh in into the spoiler verse it's the name of the segment uh go away watch the episode and come back and forget that i told you to go away because that's a bit rude and you might you might be put off with that anyway guys let's talk about the episode uh eight that was first off we're going to get kicked off with our alt recap and when we are in the kicked off with a preacher named david who actually looks like david from mythic quest gone insane with power at uh, giving a jesus eulogy in a steakhouse which if that was my best option for survival in the Apocalypse, I'd probably just shift the mushroom and join Team Infected instead. As Ellie runs out of food, she goes hunting and takes down a deer. However, in retrieving it, she bumps into David and James, aka Troy Baker, aka fucking Joel from the game. Ah! And then holds them at gunpoint in exchange for medicine, which is actually the quickest way to get medicine if you're shopping in the square tala. Uh, after revealing that he knows Joel killed his man <laughs> back at the university, David lets Ellie escape with the medicine. Fortunately, she gets the hang of using syringes. Quicker than that time, I lived in O'Connell Street for a year. So even though the next day, David and the totally venison squad track her home and kidnap her, it's enough to give Joel the strength he needs to recover. Joel's reaction to that sweet, sweet penicillin it's a similar reaction to Papa eating spinach. If Papa eating spinach saw him graphically torture and murder anyone who stood in his way, which would be very funny if they kept the same music, to be fair, or just put the Popeye music over Joel torturing the lads, where it's like, meanwhile, David has Ellie locked in a cage and is trying to sell her on the community, explaining as she notices the chopped up ears that it's not actually a town, it's more of a resort, kind of like the Puerto del Cannibal. He also reveals that his religion is Roman Catholic because it turns out it seems that he's a preacher who likes his human remains with a side of sex with children. Uh, Ellie manages to escape and uh, set the stake out ablaze, steakhouse ablaze, but finds herself pinned down by David, about to have his way with her. Uh, just as all looks lost, though, she manages to grab the cleaver, stab him in the neck before being comforted by a Joel who arrives on the scene to shepherd her back to safety. And meanwhile, back in Dublin, my therapist picked up her phone and made an extra easy hundred euro. Yes, Joanna, we're going to talk about the David storyline yet again it's quite upsetting okay and that was episode eight when we are in need let's talk about it and bruiser in particular i want to start with you because you said at the start of this this is your episode we've been building up to it we've been hyped for me personally and we spoke about the episode length of next week apparently 
I was shocked that this was just 46 minutes because, again, I was like, this is a long, important phase of the game. So they condense quite a lot into a short runtime. Obviously, you had a lot tied up in this 46 minutes. You've hinted at it already. How did it land? Did it live up to the hype and what you imagined in your head for you? I suppose it kind of did. You see Ellie on her own, how she has to, she becomes the hero, essentially. right? And that's why I said it from the start, because she went from being a side character to, to becoming, you know, a main character in my mind when we were playing that part. Uh, everything did bar the, the finale scene, I guess. It just didn't kick off. It just didn't have as much drama as I had hoped. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, obviously, because you're in the game and, and you're trying to go around and you're trying to stab and you got to cut him like three times, is it four times before the cutscene initiates? But yeah, you know, you're so close to death the whole time and you can't see. I felt it was just a little bit quickened, maybe. And the fact that the place went ablaze just like that as well, it all just felt a little bit rushed. Mm-hmm. But I suppose that was the whole episode, as, as we've all alluded to, you know, it was a very condensed episode with an awful lot going on. I personally would have liked that to be two episodes. Like if they gave you the other the other one, uh, I can't remember her name now. Remember the when you met Kathleen? Yes. Yeah. yeah. You know, they gave her two episode arc, right? Like why the fuck did we give this random or two episode arc? When we could have given David two episode arc. Mm. He's the fucking villain. You know what I mean? Like he's been he's the heel of it all. You know. So I just felt there was a couple of mistakes like that made overall of the episode. Hit yeah, hit everywhere. It was fucking fantastic. I just would have liked him to see more of it i guess i agree with that um and and yeah i'd like to kind of touch on that but first i kind of want to check in with you kev last week you Mm. spoke a kind of left behind and you made the great point that it was almost too similar to the game and that you felt that you were just watching someone play the game and this was also quite similar to the game with some small differences like again stuff like the uh david being a preacher that was new and and little things and like joel was now trying to kill ellie in a weird kind of twist here um though obviously joel from the game troy troy baker there um did that move the needle to you? Was there enough of those differences? How did you feel about this? That was going to be my my first point. I was going to say, I'm going to sound like an absolute hypocrite here because I mentioned all that last week. And then this week, they stuck super well to the game for the most <laughs> part. And I'm like, I love every second of this. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just, it's just one of the best parts of the game. And if they're going to do something the exact same as the game, like do that. The only thing, and I, I will say, which was quite, rushed and I completely agree as well with that they could have given a bit more time to I love the section of the game where they're holding out from from clickers and and runners uh, David and and Ellie and they could have they could have maybe done that because you're kind of you're in you're that's two well I know you got one clicker last time or it wasn't even a clicker it was a runner they could have introduced that that kind of uh, dangerous element I think into this maybe for that extra 10 or 15 minutes if they want to um and maybe to have Ellie trust David a little bit more um, before the reveal of like of how fucked he is, basically. I think that would have been a nice kind of little touch. And, or even if they wanted to split into two episodes, like Kev said as well, um, it would have been great too. So, uh, But overall, absolutely loved it though. I think there's, for me, I, I agree with a lot of both of what you're saying. Don't disagree with anything. <clears throat> for me, there's two different things here. As a standalone episode of television, it was almost better mm. that they condensed it all into 46 minutes because this was insane. Yeah. This is like, consider as well, this is a HBO series. This is the second to last episode. That's the big episode in the HBO series. So this had to kind of fit that mold and fit live up to the expectations because it is that prestige series. But you have also like, so if I was watching this and didn't know the game or the potential, 
I think I'd love this. And I did. I loved watching this. This was great television. And like kind of they got so much of this right. And I agree yeah. with you in that, like, yeah, the, the the game, you don't need to mess around with that formula because it's there. It's amazing. It's phenomenal. But then again, yeah, we do have those expectations of what the game can do. And for anyone who, who's never played the game, just to give you a bit of context there, um, we spoke last week about some of the differences. So again, kind of this is all tied together from Joel kind of fake dying at the university. Um, and again, in the game, you very much believe Joel... It's like it's 95% convinced that Joel has died because you start off at the point where Ellie is hunting the deer. That was very similar to how it was in the game. Um, Like even with the de- she hits the deer, but then the deer runs off and Ellie has to chase the deer. That was just total uh, mm. Easter egg for the game. <laughs> But then you meet David and the, the point that Kev is speaking to there is as you're kind of talking and as Ellie is sussing David out, you then have a lot of infected attack and you have to fight together and that bonds you towards David and you start to develop a trust because obviously you're like, well, he would have just killed me. Why did he save my life at certain times? You know what I mean? Now, you know why later because he's a fucking pedophile. (laughs) But um, yeah, there's that point as well. And I would have thought that like, again, and uh, we kind of spoke about this last week, so no need to kind of delve too deeply into it. I thought, I think I agree with exactly what you're saying, Bruce, and that, having a two episode arc here where you kind of, you can intersperse left behind and kind of flashbacks within the two, which just held them as a two parter. Um, I think that would have been much more effective because again, you you kind of lost the intrigue over whether Joel comes back. And again, last week I was like, you'll know the part where Joel is coming back. And yeah, he, they still kind of did get the part of Joel being like the, prof- the good guy, professional wrestler, his music hits and he's back and he's kicking <laughs> ass. Like, and, and they sold that well, even with like, he was on the bed and then he's not on the bed, but we don't know where he is in the room. And then it's like, he's fucking back. Yeah. And even though obviously gamers know that, that he's going to be and what's going to happen. But like, yeah, by the fake out of having him still alive and that reveal, the fact that we lost all of that, we know what it could have been. And I think it just was better in the game. But I don't want to take away this. I understand what you said. And Druckmann Amazing on, on the HBO podcast did speak about the, the sequence that you're talking about, Kev, there. And they said, we decided not to have that because we felt that that distracted way too much from what was going on. Because if they're then out in the forest and they have to have more scenes, you're then waiting to see, is there more infected? Are they going to get attacked again? And it just distracts yeah. you from what you're supposed to be focused on. Whereas if you just don't have the infected, then it's a whole different story. So I can I can appreciate that. I can get it. I, I don't mind. And I trust these guys and the changes that they make. Um, But yeah, I get it. Um, So look, for me though, one of the big triumphs of this episode, and again, I'd love to kind of get both your takes on this, was Bella Ramsey. This was the episode for me where... Again, there was a lot of debate, particularly when she got cast. People were like, this doesn't look like Ellie. She's not like Ellie. It's not the same. And people had their own kind of Ellie's in mind who they want to see cast. And again, you know, she was building up to this and she's been winning us over week by week, I think, with her charm and how convincingly she's playing it. For me, this is when she became Ellie and she earned, she filled the boots properly. And she actually brought stuff to it that you didn't even get with the in-game Ellie. And I'll never, ever disrespect Ashley Johnson's performance. But... For me, this is when she got to hold up to the ma- the mantle. What were your own thoughts, guys? And what was for you? What What do you think the best Ellie moment was this week? Because this was her episode in a big, big way, and she kind of um, there were a lot of different ep- moments in this episode. Was that with you, Bruce? Um, yeah. Uh, the the reaction to when the deer was there when she popped the deer and she came from behind the two lads and she was saying, you know, move around the put one between your eyes. 
and then she kept repeating that and hitting that stance was was brilliant. Um, I was very much looking forward to it because again, I kind of always looked at Elia as the side character until this moment. Do I think I got the sympathy levels there though and cared as much? Probably not. Is that saying anything against Bella Ramsey's performance? And no, not in any way. Maybe just because it was so rushed and action packed, and you knew Joe was coming, and you know, maybe maybe that threw me off. Also, maybe the fact that I knew how it was going to finalize, you know, that way that, that there's a good chance of that. Yeah. Uh, so I guess I didn't get the sympathy I felt the first time around, but again, I'm not doing, watching it for the first time. You get me? So. Maybe that took away from me, you know. But overall, yeah, incredible. she's done great. But she, she is Ellie, you know what I mean? She's done her own Ellie now. She is Ellie. That's great. Rather, I have the same connections. That's my fault, probably. You know what I mean? Nothing on her performance or anything like it. It's it's also very mm. hard to recreate that scene, like especially the end where she does take out David. Because if you do compare it to the games, and I hate to constantly have this, but like if you do compare it, you are Ellie. And you're actively exactly. playing while yeah. this is happening. So David's on top and you're struggling. You know what I mean? So you feel like that's happening to you. You know what I mean? So you've, it's a very personal experience that you feel it. And I don't think there's any way the TV show could fully recreate that. But I think yeah. what they added in place, like with her reactions, like her reactions to this were incredible. And they made a conscious choice. And, and again, they spoke about in the HBO podcast about why they made this choice um, to not have Joel intervene. First off, they didn't want it to be seen at all like Joel saved Ellie they're like no this is Ellie's moment and we want her to save herself but also as well they were like there's practical things where you get involved like if Joel gets in like why couldn't Ellie escape like why could uh, you know what I mean and there was like practical sides of it where it just didn't make sense for Joel to come in and to meet her outside more than anything um but because she was left to be free, what they explained was she didn't get any direction. They just told her, just feel the moment and do what you want. And they let the camera linger on her. So the, the, you might have noticed the part where she stopped and then she started again. She like almost gets angry all over again and then goes back and starts laying into him all over. That was all her. That was all Bella Ramsey added to it. So it was raw emotion that I think we could feel. And I don't feel that we got that necessarily in the game. So I think they made up for it in, in, in certain ways. If you think about our Hulk, like when we were joking about crippling that guy and all, you know what I mean? She has been quite a psychotic Ellie the whole way through. So there's no real shock to me that she, she had a breaking moment there and continued yeah. cutting the fucker up, you know? One thing, though, I, uh, just before we move on, or before you go to Kev, who injects a fucking syringe into a wound like that? It was horrific looking. Just <laughs> like, a kid. Don't directly stab me again, you fucking head. <laughs> <laughs> we've 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 like given Ellie and Bella Ramsey a lot of credit on this uh show and on her recaps. One thing she is not is a doctor, and <laughs> as previously seen, she's like, My hands are medicine, I'm going to wipe my blood on your <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that's who we're talking about here. So that person is the person who, who uh, yeah. Uh, Kev, your own thoughts on Bella Ramsey this week and kind of if you had any particular favourite moment. Uh, I thought she was incredible this week. Yeah, she really just upped her game in this episode. My, my favourite moment is when she says her name to David. Yes. In the in the in the cage. Um, after you see, she kind of lulls him in by putting her hands on his. And then breaks his finger and then says, uh, you tell them the little girl, or Ellie is the little girl that broke your fucking fingers. And you're oh. like, fuck yeah. What a, and the way she delivered that line is all blood. It was like Becky Lynch. Yes. Uh, with the blood down her face as well. Yes. <laughs> it was like that, like 
fuck yes moment. Um, and you're kind of just you're just cheering at the TV when she did that, and I loved that scene. It was just brilliant. Um, and then even just the the the, the moment then as well when she she tells she tells David she's infected too, and you're like, what a fucking genius move. If you've not played the game, you're like, holy shit, where did you pull that out of? Like, yeah. Um, brilliant though, I absolutely love that scene. Even but when she comes out of the um, of the cafe and 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 sees Joel for the first time and grabs her, and then that reaction as well is just so heartbreaking and emotional. And like that's that's another part. I think I I I was more emotional watching that than I was playing the game when Joel saved her. It's just her reactions there are just so genuine, like as well. It hits differently just seeing just seeing it play out in in real life. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, and yeah. there's just like if someone plays that well, it's just going to hit you in a different way. In the same way, a lot of the violence does. In the same way, they've kind of taken a lot of the violence away from Joel because they know if we see a real person do this to another person, we're gonna feel like unless like kind of now we did see Joel get vicious at some stage in this episode, but we also were worried for Ellie. So like we we kind of we we morally kind of shrugged that off like because we felt mm. kind of justified or worried um but yeah there, there's something different to that and what i loved there's a couple of moments in this that there's three moments i won't say these are my favorite moments because that line delivery you spoke about as well was just like oh my god she's just reaching into something else there and again she's kind of that's where she's making ellie her own and she's not just doing an ashley johnson impersonation she's going like no how do i be the best bella ramsey version of ellie yeah. and, and and i'm all in with it there were three different choices where I just, and it was just a tiny thing she did. So the reaction when um, David put his hand on her hand and she realized that there was a sexual element to this and she kind of went, oh, and like it mm. was both real, but it was brilliant because it's just that one, oh, told you so much. It was both realization, but also her kind of playing into it. You know what I mean? Like she's, she's improvising. She's thinking very quickly on her feet there. You know what I mean? Like where she's like saying, Oh, because she needs to react because she's so surprised, but she's also saying it in a tone where it's almost like she's interested. You know what I mean? Cause she knows she she's now, you now know that she's got a plan for how she's going to use this, you know, and she's, she's yeah. formulating that in her head. There was another one where David's on top of her and kind of all the, what you call it? The, the fight that was in her beforehand in the other room kind of went out of her and it was just replaced with a child being afraid where a man's on top of her. You know what I mean? And that was just that, but I think that's what made it so terrifying in that yeah. it was a much shorter version of that scene. Thankfully, I think, um, than we got in the game, but that facial expression alone was enough. And again, the last one is just to speak on what you're saying when she saw Joel, because the instinct for that, like the if it's if you're just playing it on an easy level, the instinct for an actor is to have that be a happy reunion where she's delighted to see him. But that's not the real lived experience that Ellie would have. She's traumatized. She's just like she's looking at him and she's still ready to fight. She's gonna fight anyone that comes near her because she's just that defensive and traumatized. And it just takes her that length of time, which makes it so like it makes the baby girl comment it's okay baby girl it's okay baby which is just so oh my god um what he used to call sarah and and kind of that moment that hits in the way that it does it just it makes that feel so earned you know what i mean because it's like yeah he, he sees her in that way and he just knows i need to comfort her and it doesn't matter and this is my daughter and that's where he just makes that decision regardless of anything else he's like this is my daughter she needs me to comfort her so i'm gonna 
be her dad, you know, and that's the scene. And there you go. And then heading into the last episode now where we know obviously where it's going, it that really hits like that that kind of feeling and and, and tells us about Joel's mindset, which is going to be important. Let's let's stay on Joel for a bit because they did choose to slightly modify Joel's impact here. Uh, like I said, he's he only meets Ellie outside. Um, and again, the decision was to give Ellie full ownership over this. We did see him be a badass. Look, he killed like five people, <laughs> which is no <laughs> small feat. Was fucking oh, dead. Oh my yeah. god, <laughs> dead. That yeah, the That's how I want to do it. Yeah, this is the first time we've got to see Pedro Pascal be that version of Joel. Do you know what I mean? Because even when we, though we've seen him be violent before, we still like Pedro Pascal. And we still have this like, oh, Pedro Pascal's lovely deep down. You know what I mean? Even, and even watching The Mandalorian, where, like he's a badass when he's got the helmet on. When he takes the helmet off, it's like, oh, he's, he's lovely. <laughs> he's just a nice man. Um, But this is this version of Joel. This is the game version, the guy who killed over 300 people in the game. Uh, and this is Pedro Pascal getting to show that. What were your thoughts on it? Is he able to pull that off? Because again... Him being able to pull that off is quite important when when we know what's coming. Uh, Bruce, what were your thoughts on, on Pedro Pascal yeah. on full badass? No, hundred percent. He hit the switch. You know what I mean? Like fucking the whole way through, he didn't have to be an aggressor. He was on the defensive, and he was defending everyone and uh, defending Eddie and just getting her to her destination. And kind of still, he got emotionally invested, but he was still looking at it as a task and a job at hand. And he's like, oh. We don't need to have this trouble here. Keep, you know what I mean. Avoid it when we can. But as soon as it was, you know, his back's against the wall. He fucking went, went at it, you know. And he, like when he killed your man, and I was like, he told you where it was. Why'd you kill him? I was like, cause I fuck. You know what I mean? I did like, you know, fuck you. You're dead next. You know, like it was, it was really a really good hit the switch, making you realize that they've gone too far and that he cares much more for Ellie than we imagined that now he is the father figure like he's seen it as that you know and he's he's taken on that role now and that child has to be fucking saved he never once thought oh, maybe I'll just back out of here now maybe she's fucking dead and I'll leave it to it he was like where the fuck is she yeah. she has to be saved you know Kev your thoughts on that yeah um, that first knife kill when he's like hiding down in the basement and, and takes the first guy out is one of the most brutal deaths that guy's like death face was brilliant as yes. well yes. it was so so good but just the struggle down onto the ground and how long it took as well was just horrific um i love that and then obviously then the, the the line from the game of like yeah i know but i believe him and <laughs> it was just that was amazing. amazing yeah yeah but like it's 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 just as soon as he knows like ellie's in trouble and just going into like full you are all fucked mode um it was great. Just even just the hair just being completely messed up as well. Um was great. And like he's clearly struggling as well with, with his wounds still too. And it's just going on pure adrenaline. Mm. Um just brilliant. Really just unhinged Pedro Pascal. Yeah, I liked as well because there is like kind of a the game, if anything, felt like propaganda for the power of penicillin. Um, because again, he's just <laughs> Superman after uh, apparently Ellie, like what, what actually happened, because I don't think we saw the ejection, but apparently, like all Ellie did was just inject it directly into his wound. <laughs> it's video game logic, though, it's fine. Yeah, that's fair. Exactly. We don't mind it as a video game because look, you want to be a badass at that stage. But like, yeah, I thought the way they did it as well was very convincing, you know what I mean? Because they didn't make him Superman, you know, he he beat people by uh 
fighting smart. You know what I mean? He he hit around the corner for that guy, and he's like, I've got one shot. I need to get this knife into the neck. And yeah. then the other two guys, he kind of used his stealth, which, again, love seeing a bit of stealth. Great stuff. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so Scott Shepard, who played David, had a, a big shoes to fill, and he had a big job to do. Because, as you alluded to, Bruiser, David is kind of the big villain of... Um, the last of us, he really is. He's the, he's the heel. They added on their religious aspect. So, Kev, do you think he kind of do you think he pulled this off? Do you think kind of he he nailed David? Or do you, like again, we had all our expectations of what David needs to be. How do you think Scott Shepard hit it? Do you think he got it? Or, um, I think he's more charming in the game. Mm. Um, but like it's the only thing is when with shows like this. As soon, because the show opened with him doing Bible scripture and you're kind of like, mm, I know that's probably not a good sign, to be honest, when someone's opening with Bible scripture um, and like I'll make the book of Revelations as well. Um, I don't know if I loved this version of David. Um, he was OK. OK. Um, I'm not too sure about it. And I don't know what it is. Maybe I'm just comparing him to the game version too much, but like I don't think he was as charming as the game version and kind of like lulling lulling you into a, a much more false sense of security there's something i don't know just a bit off about him from the get-go there is um, a need in in the in this show and i think it's a deliberate need to kind of have shades of gray like we've spoken a, a lot about like people are good guys or bad guys often just depending on where you meet them and the context of what's happening and if we saw them like a week beforehand, they'd probably be the good guy. You know, it just it just depends yeah. on, on what what our main characters need to do because they're very much the heroes in our mind. They have attempted to kind of give the character shades of grey. So you have, for example, Quan last week, the Fedra agent, being nice to Ellie. Now, what he's saying is horrific, but we see him actually just caring and warming to Ellie. So we kind of like, you know, maybe he went the wrong way, but maybe all Fedra agents aren't that bad. You have, for example, Kathleen. Again, like if we'd have met her a week beforehand, she got rid of Fedra from a town where who seemed like horrible tyrants. Um, and she's been obviously just um, guided by revenge and emotion, which is very relatable. But again, we see it leads her to do horrible things. So is she a bad person? I think there's elements of this where the religious aspect and kind of the fact that there are elements where David is a dickhead. He's an abusive leader. We see him at one stage slapping like the mm. girl who lost her father. You know what I mean? And then trying to be her dad. Uh, and then obviously we see him kind of give his monologue to Elliot. We're like, okay, this person's truly deranged. Um, so again, I'm not I'm saying potentially that... feeding that girl her father as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Literally, that, <laughs> like... that was that was not venison. That was not venison. That was Alex. <laughs> that was she was eating her dad. Like that was what was happening there. There's no doubt about yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but with that as well, he then tried to justify it. He's like, look, we have to eat. The winter's cold. I know this is wrong, but we're 20 years into the apocalypse. Meat is hard to come by. Do you think that there was do you think that they rounded out David? Do you think there was any redemptive aspects to him? Or Bruce, what was your take on, on Scott Shepherd's David? Um, yeah, I think he was uh, solid. He probably wasn't as vicious. Like when he turned heel, it probably wasn't as aggressive or as violent as we thought. But what I liked about him was when he, when he slapped that girl in the hall, he was a prick. Mm. You know what I mean? Uh, and he became an asshole straight away to me. And then I wanted him dead. And, I, you know, you knew this guy's a fucking dickhead, you know, so you looked forward to the, the you looked forward to him getting his comeuppance, if you knew he was getting his comeuppance, just from that scene, I thought, you know, mm. uh, but yeah, the lull, the religious stuff, uh, 
I guess how nice he was talking that time to Ellie, and then when he brought it up, when the man was there with the gun behind behind her back, and he said, uh, we had a little girl, she lost her parents, blah, blah, blah. He, that man was travelling with it, and Ellie copped on. That was nicely done and sinister, mm. you know, but the trying to keep her alive, and yet the heart when he's trying to keep her alive, you're like, why is he trying to keep her alive? What? But obviously, he's a fucking pedo. And when when you when she cops that on, then it just it was a good come round to it, if that makes any sense. And as soon as he realized, as soon as he realized that it wasn't gonna go his way, then he wanted her dead or something else, you know that way. So he tried killing her with your man. When that failed, it was just really he was he was the perfect kind of he wasn't a badass. He was a prick. You get me? And I think it was yeah. done well. That's kind of how I think. So yeah, I liked him. I liked him. But again, would like to see more of him. Think I would have cared more if I seen him the week before. Yeah, you know. Yeah, that's fair. And like again, but sometimes that's more scary. That's scarier when you have someone who, again, it's not that David is this badass, but he's that manipulative that he can get other people to do as horrible things for him. And again, even while being abusive to those people, so in a way that is almost even scarier. You know what I mean? He's gonna slap your daughter and tell you to sit down. You know what I mean? And then the people will sit down and just like no one will react. You know what I mean? Uh, that, that that's power right there. Um, it reminds me a bit of of Sir. He's old. Uh, no, this is power. Is power. You know what I mean? I'm just gonna do yeah. this, and there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, and no one does. And he's not afraid. And he sits down and has his human remains for dinner. His like his <laughs> Alex Stew. Um, but also as well, what I found was interesting. I've watched this episode twice, and I didn't actually notice this plot line until it was explained when I listened to the HBO podcast, and then I watched rewatched it again. We obviously have. We met. We said goodbye to OG Tommy a few weeks ago, um, with Kathleen's squad, uh, and we met OG Joel this week with Troy Baker, obviously playing James. It was an interesting one where Mason and Druckmann kind of explained James's role as seeing being threatened by Ellie. Do you know what I mean? And I never thought about this in it, but like think about their relationship. So. David lets Ellie go when James has his gun on her and is like, put the gun down. Because James is, he assumes that he's David's number two, you know? And he's like, well, why would you let her away? You know, he doesn't understand that decision. And again, it makes more sense in the game where they go back. But again, David just doesn't feel the need to explain it to James and he doesn't get that kind of... So I can see James's frustration when you kind of watch it back with this in mind. Then later on, obviously... David wants Ellie alive um, and they have that moment where James shoots the horse and gets her off the horse and then the rest of the guys are like, do it, do it. And James is ready to kill her there and then until David stops him. And then obviously later on, you have James trying to kill, kill him as well. So it was an interesting kind of dichotomy with that. Troy Baker, though, is a big name. He presents this podcast that we talk about every single week. He's a big name in The Last of Us. He's the original Joel was this a good usage of Troy Baker? Or would you like to see him have maybe a more substantial role? Or is this exactly the kind of nice Easter egg that we get? What were your own thoughts on, on Troy Baker being here, but also James, the character, and how, how that's it with you, Kev? Um, I think it was the perfect role for him, to be honest. Because like, he's such a he's such a charismatic person. I think he would have maybe taken it away from other people, I think, as well. It was nice to kind of give him this more subdued role. And he played it perfectly, like as well. And they kind of even they uglied him up a bit because he's a he's like, I mean, he's a hunky dude. So they they kind of really uglied him up. And um, yeah, I thought he just he played the role kind of exactly like 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 the game, essentially, like as well. But I, that's a really good point, or it's just from the, the podcast they were saying yeah. 
him being threatened um as being the number two is is a, a nice little kind of um flourish they kind of put in his character there as well. That's great. Um yeah. I never even really noticed that first time watching it. But um yeah, yeah he's 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 so charismatic normally I think it was the perfect role I think for him for not to take away from other characters. It it was that he saw Ellie as like I think he noticed that David saw Ellie as an equal Whereas mm. I think he know he was smart enough to know that David saw him and his mates, the the totally not totally venison crew. Um, I think he he saw that David saw them as just disposable goons. You know what I mean? Goons for hire, people for Joel to kill at free will, and Dave Dave wouldn't think about them twice or potential meals. That's what he's looking at them as. Like, oh god, yeah, because he's probably one of the only ones who knows what's he's like, going oh, on. Really, isn't he? shit. Oh, James, <laughs> you looking tasty today? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, He's like, oh man, he wants to eat me. Fuck. Uh, that's it. Imagine that. Imagine you like imagine all the stresses you have with your boss. And like you have to be like, I I right, okay. I can't piss my boss off. I can't do that thing he hates. And I can never look tasty. I can never look <laughs> succulent. That's just not a look I can. Well, they ugly them up. <laughs> I can never look good with a bit of salt and pepper. Um, what a stress to have to like think about every day. Uh, Bruiser, your thoughts on Troy Baker and, and James? Yeah, so like I'm actually pretty shit with names and actors and everything else. So I didn't even know it was him until we were discussing it. Or maybe you put it up on Twitter and that's when I seen the force, but it was after I'd watched it. So uh, yeah, I think it, to me, just because I don't really know him, I think it's a cool Easter egg that he's done it. You know, that way the character was grand. Uh, a really interesting side character, I guess, with a decent little a short arc and what he had. But yeah, he was it was perfect. There wasn't too in your face. It wasn't too hinted at, but it would it was nice for it was obviously nice for guys like you that who knew who he was and knew parts of the games, and that's what that was in, inserted for. Obviously, that was cool. Yeah. yeah, there was no harm in him, you know that yeah. way. Like, yeah, he didn't. It there was he never took away because they gave him that role, you know that way or at, like it was it was a perfect role for him probably. Yeah, I it's it, it's something that I like because again, like. If you're not gonna make him Joel, if you're not gonna give him the actual role, it's and he could easily do it. Like, like ah. but I, I, I'm happy with Pedro Pascal. Don't worry, I'm very happy with the casting. But like, if you're not going to give him Joel, you can't give him anything distracting. But he has to be someone there for the Leonardo DiCaprio meme, where you're just mm. kind of like, oh, like that. That's what he's there for, and he has to kind of be there. So again, good for him, and he seemed absolutely delighted with it as well. So uh, that that's I'm gonna I'm gonna rewatch this show with Nicola when it's over. And like I'm gonna act like I knew that was him all along when I'm telling This is geeky as shit. <laughs> this is why we have this conversation. We're here to give you guys listening some like nuggets that you can take to your friends or that you can pass off as your own. And obviously all, all we ask in return is just recommend us to them like eventually you know what I mean drop it in you should listen to that page 180 pod um, that's all we want that's all we want uh, guys that's it well like for, for episode 8 unless anyone oh, else... I, have, I have a question go for it what happens to the rest of the people in that town now that David and a bunch of the, uh, the the lads are dead now <laughs> are they like fucked well, yeah, like they're gonna find the you because Joel found the humans. How did none of them find the humans? Yeah, Joel was there for like ten <laughs> minutes, and Joel's like, "There's all the humans that they're cutting." Yeah. 
how did so they're gonna find them and they're gonna be like eh, oh yeah he died for dinner last night that's like a weird christmas carol <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then like the harsh snow and like i think they're just all dead now <laughs> like, yeah actually they, they got much of a life like they looked grim as fucking man. yeah all the steakhouse where they're having dinner I fucking I'd soon I as you said earlier, I kiss one of the fucking mushrooms like fuck that like. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's that on, on episode eight. Or is there anything else you guys wanted to kind of discuss or kind of note or any Easter eggs or no? Um one last thing actually, oh, just about David's character that I really yes. liked was him kind of using the mushrooms as like a nearly a religious kind of yes. uh, Kind of like how much he admires what they do and how they spread out and the violence and stuff as well. I, and it's maybe like a creed. I love that. That was a lovely little addition to that as well, to David's character actually as well, just to mm-hmm. kind of get back to him as well. Um, but yeah, I just really, really liked that that little um that little monologue he had. Yeah, that's very true. It makes it, but it also makes us think about cordyceps a different way. You know what I mean? And that it's yeah. like this living thing um, that, yeah, they need to. Um, also as well, like kind of a lot of Bible imagery, do you know what I mean? Like he was, you know, there's this religious guy. Again, I listened to uh, the Prestige TV podcast as well as one that I listened to. Van Leighton kind of broke it down where it's like, you know, Ellie was this virgin. Then that's why he was interested in her. Do you know what I mean? And there was a lot of kind of imagery around that in there. So, uh, yeah, if you're mm. interested in kind of delving into that side of things, uh, I really recommend giving that podcast to listen. Van Leighton and Charles Holmes, um, excellent, excellent breakdown. Not as good as us, though. Not as good as us. Like, stay with us. <laughs> <laughs> Because we'll just tell you what all the good analysis is. We'll just like collate it all and steal it for ourselves. (laughs) Um, Guys, what do you want from the finale? So 40 minutes next week. I'll tell you what I want. I want an hour and a half long episode. So you need to give us the director's fucking call. I I was watching on Now TV. You can kind of just see the next episode and how long it is. And it's 42 minutes, I think it is. Yeah, Ah. devastated with that. Ah, like a lot to pack. I'm staying up and watching it like after the Oscars, like on Sunday. So like, I suppose at 3 a.m. I might be appreciative of it, but apart from that, no. I want as much as I can get out of it. But is there anything in particular? Obviously, we won't talk about particular plot points because we know that the beats of what's to come. Um, but is there anything in particular you guys are looking for or kind of you want to see kind of with the finale itself? I love right. It's a little sidestep. Obviously, this doesn't happen in the game or whatever, but it'd be great. If it opened up and it's a dark room, there's a clicker and he's eating Tommy's face. <laughs> <laughs> they never refer back to it. They just it's like <laughs> that's it. Yeah, it's just that happened. We all know he's dead now. And we can move on with the life in the show. Or or even worse, they're just like they just have an inserted scene where we're just dubbed over. It's like, I must go back to my home planet <laughs> Amazing, yeah. No, look, if they do that, it would pop me so much, I wouldn't even mind that it'd be shit television. <laughs> You've ruined season two, but like, look, okay, worth it for the joke, worth it for the lols. <laughs> your own thoughts, anything you're looking forward to, or you you want us you want from next week? Um, geez, I don't have to say it without spoilers, but just no, that nature so... scene, I'll say, would be yeah, lovely. Yeah, yeah, we're getting it 100, like, but, yeah. They're not leaving that out like that is not. But, uh, or clicker eating Tommy. Yeah, oh, I mean, can I not have both? Can I not have <laughs> vanilla and chocolate? Like, 
<laughs> Amazing stuff. I cannot wait. And look, guys, I can't wait to discuss this. We said this is a start. Great stories are meant to be shared. And guys, it's been a pleasure to share with you. Let's do it one more time next week. Uh, we may see if we can get it. I'm still working on it. We're hoping to maybe add someone else into the mix who can view tell us like the experience from a non-gamer standpoint. So uh hold that, uh hold that top. But guys, I'm looking forward to kind of breaking it down with yourselves next week. So thank you uh for the past eight weeks and let's do it one more time and then we'll kind of go into uh withdrawals and, and start shaking um <laughs> and just praying that in season two we get the, the clicker tommy scene but uh guys thanks for joining us the two kevs kev fan club on twitter at bmun bruiser on twitter give them a follow uh get their thoughts and uh yeah thanks for joining us guys pleasure as always lads thanks Fuck Tommy, I'm out. Good luck. <laughs> That's all the time we have for this week on page 180. Next week, it's going to be the last episode of The Last of Us for a long, long time. So we'll be going all out to break sure what I'm sure will be a box office season finale. Plus, we'll have reviews of 65, Scream 6, and Luther, The Fallen Sun. In the meantime, if you haven't already, subscribe to us on socials, on Insta, Twitter, and Facebook at page180pod. But until next week, this has been page 180, and I am not going to have another stroke tonight. I'll have it tomorrow. <laughs>